Well, I'd like to welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God. Members and guests, welcome. I invite you to turn in God's holy word to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7 verse 1, we'll be looking at 7 and 8, uh, but we'll be reading selectively uh, from Ezra 7 and 8. So let's hear God's word together. Ezra chapter 7 verse 1, this is God's word. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, uh, son of Am- Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of uh, Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day to the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. All right, jump forward to 727. Uh, What we are skipping is the king's decree. Artaxerxes uh, writes a letter saying that Ezra can go back, and there are various other things that he says there also, but this is Ezra's response to the king's decree. Verse 27, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And then at the beginning of chapter 8, we get Uh, a genealogy of the families that went back to the land, back to Jerusalem with Ezra. Uh, Look at 8.15. I gathered gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found that there were none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, Meshullam, leading men, and for uh, Joyarib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Ido, the leading man of the place, Casiphia, telling them to say what Ido and his brothers and the temple servants at the place, Casiphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mali, the sons of Levi, the sons of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18, and Hashabiah with, uh, and also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons twenty, besides two twenty of the temple servants whom David and his officials set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of God is for good on all who seek him. 
and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Jump down uh, to verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar the son of Phinehas, and with, with them were the Levites, Josabad the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was re record, uh, recorded. And the final verses describe how these returned exiles worship their God through sacrifices uh, at the end of their journey home. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we acknowledge that you are Lord over all, that you are our king, and we thank you that you are faithful to us. Lord, to the extent that we, our lives are characterized by fear and anxiety, help us to repent and place our confidence in you. Uh, because you are in control over all things, it's not our destiny to perish, it's our destiny to conquer through your faithfulness. Help us to live in light of that great reality. Help us also, Father, to give ourselves to a wholehearted and comprehensive obedience. As our King, we want to please you not in simply some aspects of our lives, but in absolutely everything. Please, Lord, use the preaching of your word to that end today. Help us to discern your will and through the power of your spirit, enable us to do what we ask. This for your glory and our good. Amen. <clears throat> so the book of Ezra Nehemiah, as we've seen, is all about how um, God is beginning to restore his people. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, God's people, Israel, had been in exile uh, because they had violated the covenant. But after 50 years of languishing in exile in Babylon, God acts again. And at the beginning of this book, we saw how there's a trickle of returned exile, exiles that begin to go back home uh, to Palestine and to the city of Jerusalem. The first task of these returned exiles is to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem. And that feat, as we saw last week in chapters 5 and 6, is accomplished. In 516, under the, uh, under the reign of King Darius, God's people uh, re complete the temple and Israel's worship is restored in the land. Uh, but when we get to chapter 7, we jump forward about 60 years after the completion of the temple. Uh, this is where Ezra comes on the scene. And it's perhaps somewhat surprising because the book is named, at least partly, after Ezra. But Ezra doesn't make an appearance until chapter 7, uh, essentially a whole generation after the first uh, generation of returning exiles. And uh, he is described as a kind of second Moses, as we'll see, who brings the law of God to the people of God. But the crucial thing to note here in these chapters is after the temple is complete, uh, God's, word, uh, God's people rather themselves need to be rebuilt according to his word. And so in these chapters, God acts to bring Ezra and other exiles back to the land for the sake of restoring the law to his people. As we look at this passage, I want us to notice three things. First, God acts to bring his word to his people. God acts to bring his word to his people. Second, God is king. Third, God calls us to put his mission 
and glory first. So the opening 10 verses of chapter 7 essentially uh, describe Ezra's mission and the return of the exiles from a bird's eye view perspective. It's a general picture. And then you get that same story given to us in much more detail in chapter 8. And we are introduced to the very impressive figure of Ezra. The genealogy that we read indicates that he comes from a priestly line. Uh, But as much as he is a priest by right, his preoccupation is not with the rituals and sacrifices of the temple. His primary mission in life is to study the Torah or the revelation of God through Moses, the law of God. We're told that Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe or a scholar skilled in the law of Moses. That was his great passion, to know God's written revelation and to live it out. Uh, Ezra was the kind of man, if you had cut him, he'd bleed Bible, right? Was thoroughly acquainted with God's written revelation. And we're told that he requested something of the king in verse 6, and that the king granted Ezra all that he asked. Now, interestingly, we don't have an account of that encounter between Ezra and the king, uh, Artaxerxes. It presumably was a very dramatic encounter uh, as Ezra stood before this Persian uh, king and made requests for the house of God and for himself. Uh, We are told, however, that the king granted Ezra everything that he asked for. And why is this? It's not because Ezra was a dazzling speaker or uniquely persuasive. Verse 6 says, For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. That's what made the difference. Uh, We saw last week how God's efforts to rebuild the temple come to fruition. Uh, They are successful because the Lord is with them. And so also in this passage, Ezra receives from the king what he asks for because the hand of God is upon him. And we actually see that phrase repeated several times in these chapters, don't we? And they reinforce this idea that all the success that Ezra and the returned exiles have comes ultimately from God himself. And that's a reminder to us that as we seek to do the will of God, we have success not because we're uniquely competent or capable. We have success because the Lord is with us. He is present and blessing. And that should give us confidence and a sense of expectation as we do his work that he will act to glorify his name. So Ezra's request is granted by the king and we can learn more about what Ezra requested from the letter uh, that is included here in chapter seven. And we'll say something about that in a moment. Uh, But it's not just Ezra that goes back to Jerusalem. We are informed that he is accompanied by other Jews and Levites and priests and singers and gatekeepers. They all head back. Uh, It takes them about four months to get to Jerusalem. This is about a 900-mile trek through through a hot and difficult land. And they get there in four months, averaging something like 10 miles a day, this caravan of Jews returning home. And they do so again, Ezra tells us, or we are told, because the good hand of God was upon them. So the king gives Ezra what he asks, and they get home safely because God was with them. Now, why? Why do we see God blessing Ezra and these exiles in such a spectacular way? And verse 10 gives us one reason. God's hand was on Ezra and gave him success for, here's the reason, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it 
and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Uh, that's why God gave him success. God is moving heaven and earth. He is turning the heart of the king of Persia so that the law of God would return to the people of God and they would be instructed in the way that they should live. We're told that Ezra was diligent about the study of the law. He was a scholar, well acquainted with what God had uh, revealed to his people through Moses, but he was also committed to doing it. And those two things should never be separated. A commitment to learning more and more about God's word should never be separated from a desire to obey that word. We should study not so that we would know all the answers and know more than other people and, have, and experience intellectual satisfaction or anything like that. We should study the word of God so that we might worship him more ardently, so that we might obey him more fully and be better equipped to serve other people. That's the function of learning. It's not just to stimulate us, it's to help us be more effective in our service to God and others. And Ezra didn't separate those things. He was a scholar, yes, but also pious and utterly de determined to do all that the law said. So he studied the word, he sought to do it, but he also sought to teach it, to return to Israel to instruct his fellow Jews in the word of God. God raised up Ezra to instruct his people in the way that they should live. Indeed, part of what he goes back to do according to the king's letter, is to appoint judges who would also render verdicts according to the law. Chapter 7, verse 25 says, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. Why is God doing this? Why is he moving all of these pieces to bring Ezra back? So the word of God would reach the people of God. And we see God doing this in every generation, giving his people not only his word, but also competent, qualified, godly people to teach that word to his people. We need both scripture and competent, godly teachers to understand that word in the way that God wants us to understand it. Let's be clear, the Bible is the ultimate authority for what we believe and do. There is no higher authority or any authority equal to the authority of Scripture. Nevertheless, the Bible is not the only authority. It's the ultimate authority, but not the only authority. The Bible itself tells us that God has given us a secondary authorities. Paul in Ephesians talks about the way Christ has given pastor teachers to the church to equip the saints in the work of ministry. God raises up uh, qualified, capable, godly men in every generation so that his people might better understand the word of God. Uh, we have his word and we have those he raises to teach us that word. And that in the first instance includes our local church pastors who are charged by God to teach us his word, but it also includes the great thinkers and leaders of the past that Christ has given to his church. Men like St. Augustine and Martin Luther and the Puritan John Owen and John Bunyan, uh, the evangelist Charles Spurgeon and men like Martin Lloyd-Jones. These are gifts that God has given to the church for the purpose not of giving us sub-biblical or extra-biblical information, but for the purpose of helping us better understand our own foundational documents, the Word of God. Now, I stress that point because there is sometimes among contemporary Christians, a temptation to be very individualistic in our reading of Scripture. 
I've got the Bible, it's the Word of God, I'm going to study it, and I can get along just fine on my own. Well, if you'd read the Bible, you would know that you can't, because the Bible itself says that there are secondary authorities God has given to help you make sense of the Bible. So this this me and the Bible only attitude is itself not biblical. Uh, You need God's Word, and of course we should read it and be diligent, and the main things in Scripture are clear, but it's that Word that also tells us that we should be learning from the men that God has given to the church, the pastor teachers, that we might grow deeper in our knowledge of Scripture. Uh, Community is the context in which God's Word should be studied and understood, not just you and the Bible. There's a church context for making sense of Scripture. I think we need to recognize that and not have an overly individualistic attitude and assume more about our abilities to understand God's Word than is perhaps warranted. God raises up this great teacher for Israel that he might teach them his law, Ezra, uh, and note what that implies about the responsibilities of the Israelites. If Ezra is called to go back to the motherland and teach the law, what are the Jews called to do? To hear and learn, right? The opposite side of the coin of teaching is learning. God's people in every generation are called to be many things, but one of them is they're called to be learners, to be diligent in steadily accumulating more and more knowledge of his written word. We are to be like chipmunks that store away acorns for the winter, bit by bit every day. Every day we have to go to God's word and accumulate a little bit more, a little bit more understanding of God and his ways. This is how we become wise. This is how we learn to look at the world and see it as God sees it, not as our culture sees it. There's often a massive discrepancy between the two perspectives. It's this steady exposure to the word of the Lord, day by day, that enables us to think God's thoughts after him. This commitment to learning his revelation is one essential way in which we love the Lord. God calls us to love him with our emotions, yes, with our will, yes, but also with our intellect. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew, Matthew 22, 37. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. God makes claims upon your intellect as well. What does it mean to love God with our our minds? It means that there is a place in our lives for learning, for becoming more conversant with Scripture, for reading some of the great books that have been written about prayer or theology or the Bible and growing in knowledge and understanding. Now, I I get, as I emphasize this duty, that there's some, perhaps, reticence uh, when I talk about the call to learning and loving God uh, by thinking his thoughts after him. And part of the reticence comes, perhaps, from seeing people who are really knowledgeable about the scriptures, they know their Bible, they know theology, but frankly, they're not that wise or loving or kind. Hopefully, you're not that person, but you may know people like that. And you look at them and you say, well, they know more than I do, and it's not helping, therefore, knowing the Bible must not be that helpful in terms of our walk with the Lord. And that's a false conclusion. Granted, it's possible to know a lot about the Bible and be foolish and unloving and proud. That's absolutely true. And this tends to happen uh, when we pursue uh, a knowledge of God's Word for its own sake, for the sake of intellectual stimulation, for the sake of knowing all the answers, and not for the sake of our relationship with Him. When you do that, it tends not to be that helpful. But, but if you seek to learn for the sake of more deeply knowing the character of the God who saved you, for the sake of better understanding his will, 
for the sake of being more effective in ministry to other people, then that learning will be very fruitful in your life. It's one of the means that God uses to help us grow in our relationship with him. So if some of you are at a place, spiritually speaking, in your relationship with the Lord where it's a little bit stale, where you love the Lord but there isn't that deep, soul-satisfying communion that you crave for, is it possible that one reason is you've neglected learning and the spiritual discipline of learning? When's the last time you read through a book of the Bible? When's the last time you read through a good book? By way of a practical suggestion here, I would say if you're not reading the Bible at all, start there. Whatever else we should read, we should read Scripture. Start by reading a paragraph or two in the Gospels, but do it every day. That's the thing, consistency, more than large blocks of time. And Donald Whitney in his book on spiritual discipline has a chapter on learning as one of the spiritual disciplines. And he says, if you're not currently reading anything, a good place to start is one page a day. One page of a good, solid Christian book helps us know God and the Bible better and read just one page a day. And you'll probably find after a while that it becomes sweeter and more a delight to your soul and there's a desire to do more of it. But if you're not currently reading any good, spiritually nourishing Christian books, can I challenge you today to commit to reading one page a day? If you're doing nothing, that's a light years ahead. Right? One page a day. And if you don't know where to start, you know, whatever else uh, Chuck and I and Randy and Mihai would like to do, we'd like to recommend books. <laughs> whatever else pastors like to do, uh, we'd like to tell you what to read. So if you need a place to start, uh, let's talk afterward. I'd love to make some suggestions. But start with one page a day and see, uh, see what that does for your walk with the Lord. Okay. God works to bring Ezra, the Bible scholar, back to the people. Uh, and as I mentioned, he approaches the king of Persia, the august Artaxerxes, to request that he would give him a few things. And the letter tells us what Artaxerxes did for Ezra. First, he says, anybody who wants to go back with you, Ezra, can, number one. Number two, there's this lavish contribution from the king and others for the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem. So the sacrificial system in Jerusalem is being funded by this Persian king. And third, Ezra is given authority to appoint judges among the Jews. Now, what's Ezra's response to that? He responds in verse 27 by praising God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. Uh, Ezra doesn't walk away from his interview with the king and say, wow, I did it, persuaded him. No, he walks away and says, God is great. God put this into the heart of King Artaxerxes to rebuild the people of God and fund the temple of God. God did it. God worked through Artaxerxes. That's why the Persian king does it, because God put it in his heart to do it. Now, if you've been following along in the book of Ezra, you might detect a theme at this point. In chapter 1, Ezra chapter 1, King Cyrus says, all of you, the, the Jews, you can go back, 538 B.C. Uh, and why does he make that decree according to the book of Ezra? Ezra 1.1 the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation. Cyrus makes that decree because God stirs his spirit, much like he puts into the heart of Artaxerxes uh, a willingness to let the people go back and fund the temple. And then under the reign of King Darius, he gives God's people permission to continue building the temple, offering sacrifices. He even funds them. Why? 
The Lord had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God. Notice that refrain. God stirred up Cyrus, moved the heart of Darius, uh, put into the heart of Artaxerxes to do this. What are we to infer from all that? What do we learn about God? We learn that he's the world's true king, that he is Lord over all, and he does what he wants in heaven and on earth. And there is no human opposition that can stop his purposes from coming to fruition. As Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God does, as king of the universe, whatever he pleases, and no human opposition to his work can thwart his purposes. Whatever God decrees will certainly come to pass. Human opposition to God's will uh, can no more stop God's will than a spider web can stop a falling stone. God's purposes are inescapably and inevitably going to come to pass. The kingdom of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ will swallow up all the kingdoms of the earth, and his rule will be established forever, and it is utterly certain. There are many things that aren't. I don't know for sure that I'll wake up tomorrow morning, but it is absolutely certain that God will triumph over all opposition, and the Son of God will restore all things. This should produce in us a cheerful confidence in our God. The kingdoms of this world are a passing shadow. His kingdom is eternal, and he will rule forever. And that is our destiny, to conquer with him. Uh, Alistair Begg uh, captures this truth, I think, very well with this anecdote. There's a, there's a Scottish uh, man by the name of Lord Reith who in the 1920s helped to get the BBC off the ground, the uh, British Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, he was its first director general. After about 40 years, the BBC expanded and grew. In the 1960s, there was some sort of meeting with the higher-ups of the BBC, and uh, there was a young man there who, who stood up and said, you know, I think that our religious programming is really out of step with where modern people are today. Uh, why don't we cut back on the religious programming, Christian programming, and maybe secularize it a little bit. So this tall Scottish man stands up, Lord Wreath, and he says, sit down. The man stands, sits down, and he says this, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. The church will stand at the grave of the BBC. In other words, when nobody's talking about the BBC anymore, and it's a distant memory, Christianity will continue marching on. The kingdom of God will continue marching on. Alistair Begg sums it up this way, God's kingdom will stand when every organization and institution and empire meets its end. Sometimes hear that uh, Christians, because of their backward sexual ethics, are on the wrong side of history. What this text is saying is we are emphatically not. God wins, and we who are under the rule of Christ will triumph with him. The opposition to God of this present evil age will pass and his kingdom will be established. That should produce a firmness and stability in our hearts as we confront a dark world. And by the way, the certainty of God's plan isn't just true at a high general level in terms of his kingdom. Your destiny as a specific sheep in his flock is also certain and guaranteed. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10, For God has not destined us for wrath, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's your destiny? Not wrath, but eternal life. Salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what God has purposed, no man can subvert. What God has decreed, no one can undermine. And that's our confidence. Whatever opposition there is to God and his people, our fate is in the hands of God, and no one can pluck us from his strong hand. So Ezra acknowledges the hand of God as well he might in all of this. God is the king who brings all of this about. And now, chapter 8, they're now ready to go back to Jerusalem. The people are assembled. Uh, They've got the king's signature on the paperwork, and they're ready to head back. What we see in this passage, by the way, is that the mission of God should be first in our lives. Assembles the people. Everything's set for the uh, 900-mile trek back to Jerusalem. And as Ezra evaluates who's with him and what resources they have, he notices that someone is missing. The Levites. None of them show up. The Levites, incidentally, are assistants to the priests. They help with the the temple worship. They also are responsible for uh, teaching the people the law, and therefore they are crucial to Ezra's mission. None of them show up. What do you think that might be, if you had to speculate? Well, presumably, life in Babylon is not all bad at this point. They've prospered a little bit. They've come to enjoy maybe some stability, some comfort, some peace and quiet. And the prospect of a 900-mile trek back to the motherland, where you've not been for more than a century, is not that appealing. Plus, if you're a Levite, you've got to help the other guys. You're not even the main guy. You've got to be an assistant to uh, the priest. And so there are all of these potential reasons for the Levites not to go back. And what they reveal is, I think, a temptation that God's people experience in every generation. And it's this. Are you going to put your comfort and ease and pleasure first, or God's mission first? Is life going to be about carving out a little bit of peace and quiet and pleasure and happiness for yourself? Is that what's going to drive your life? Or is life going to be about contributing to the onward march of God's kingdom? If you evaluated your life, where would you say you are? Are you with Ezra, chomping at the bit, ready to go back and do God's work in Jerusalem? Or are you one of the Levites, staying at home while God's people do the work of ministry. Life is good in Babylon. What captures your heart? A desire for a nice vacation, better house, more pleasure in this life? Or do you have a burning desire for your life to count for the onward progress of the gospel in whatever way God has gifted you? One indication that God's kingdom is on your heart is that you're living a life that is oriented towards other people. Uh, People who want to see Jesus' work accomplished in the world are looking for opportunities to serve others. They see needs, and they try to meet those needs through sacrificial service. Uh, They they recognize that there are issues, perhaps in the context of their local church. For example, uh, they'll notice that people, visitors, often will come early and there's nobody to greet them. So they're aware of that. The antennae are up, and they show up early for the purpose of engaging and loving. Uh, They engage with coworkers for the sake of nudging them towards Jesus Christ and making Him known. But they are constantly looking for opportunities to make an impact in the lives of other people 
for the sake of Christ. They open up their homes in hospitality and do that sort of thing. Does that characterize you? Are you looking for ways to help people, wherever they happen to be, take one step towards Jesus Christ? One of the things that encourages us and motivates us to sacrifice our own ease and comfort for Jesus, in fact, the central thing that encourages us is to look at Jesus himself. Jesus, Paul tells us in Philippians, did not consider simply his interests. He considered our interests. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Paul is saying that the eternal Son of God, who is worthy of all worship, didn't use his divine prerogatives for himself. Instead, he emptied himself of his glory and became a humble human being like us. And then he humbled himself again at the cross, dying the death of a common criminal, that our sins might be taken away and we might stand before God holy and just and acceptable. The Son of God lowered himself in service to us, and then he lowered himself again by giving his life. When you see that that's how your Savior, Jesus Christ, has loved you, it's impossible not to spend your life for him and for others. As God's people, we are called to prioritize not our own immediate comfort and ease, but the mission of God. And finally, we are called to prioritize also the glory of God above ourselves. And we see this in the uh, verse 21 and following. Ezra succeeds in getting the Levites to come. He appoints certain leaders of the community and says, hey, you go back and you persuade them and they succeed because God's hand of blessing is on them. Levites come back, but there's another hiccup before they leave. Ezra, when he stood before King Artaxerxes, told Artaxerxes, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Now, here was the dilemma for Ezra. If I go to the king and I say, hey, can you give us an armed escort to get us back safely to Jerusalem? That could seem like I don't really believe what I just said, because I just said that God takes care of his people. Now, if I believe that, would I be asking for an armed escort? And there was the rub for Ezra. God's glory was at stake, so he says, we're not going to ask for an armed escort. Which is very dangerous, because ambushes along a 900-mile road are very common. Instead, Ezra says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fast, and we're going to cry out to God in prayer, and we're going to ask him to protect us. Now, here's the amazing thing about this passage. Ezra is prioritizing the honor of God over their immediate safety and security. It's more important for God to be glorified among the Persians than for us to have an armed escort. So we're going to trust God and we're going to go. For God's people, the fundamental question in life should not be, what's going to make my life easier? What's going to keep me safe? No, the fundamental question is, how can I make God look good through the decisions I make in these circumstances? How can I lift up the name of God 
in this specific set of circumstances. So, for example, when you see your coworkers grumbling and complaining because of some difficult thing at work, and, and you respond to that situation with patience and cheerfulness, what you are communicating to the people around you is that God gives more contentment and satisfaction than even ideal work circumstances. He is bigger and better than that. And conversely, when you look around at our society and the world and feel like things are falling apart and you respond with anxiety and dread, you're controlled by fear, what you're communicating to people is these circumstances are bigger than God. God is either not powerful enough or good enough to help me in this situation. Everything that we say and do is continuously saying something about God. And Ezra's challenge to us is, in everything that we do, we should seek to make God look good. Ask yourself before you make that decision or say that word, will this make God look good to the people around me? Well, God is faithful to the prayers of His people. Uh, He brings them safely home. After 900 arduous miles, they come back to Jerusalem. Why? Because the hand of the Lord was upon them, Ezra tells us. Once again, you see that phrase. It wasn't their cunning or striving. It was the faithfulness of the Lord to His people that brings them home. It is because we serve the King of the universe that even in the midst of uncertain circumstances, we can have confidence. We may not know the answers, but He does. And the response to life's challenges should be to turn to Him in prayer and dependence and expect our King to act on our behalf. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are faithful, uh, that every day uh, that you have for us is written in your book, and you walk with us every moment of every day and bring us safely to yourself. We praise you for your faithfulness to us, and we ask, Lord, that you would teach us to depend more and more upon your faithfulness and power and rule over all things. Amen.